The time is now. Volume 7, episode 126. This is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, the host of this podcast and the vice chair of Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. Wow, what a year it has been so far, and we are not even out of February yet. The optimist in me says, well, a couple more days we will be out of February and into March. But that's not the point. The point is we are two months into the new year and it's hard to believe the number of developments, significant developments in the world of labor and employment. And here's where I come in. Today's episode, I want to talk to you about a few really significant um, developments, beginning with uh, the NLRB and what the NLRB just did, going right to what the United States Supreme Court just did. Then transitioning from that, as if that's not enough, uh, to talk to you a little bit about what the Wage and Hour Division of the United States Department of Labor just did with the hopes of helping employers comply with wage and hour obligations under the FLSA and the FMLA. And then after that, I'm going to conclude by talking about a really interesting study on whether companies should go from a five-day work week to a four-day work week. And if all of that wasn't a tease enough for you to keep you listening to this entire episode, frankly, I don't know what I could otherwise say. But let's start with the NLRB. You know, just three episodes ago, episode 123, back on January 9th, for those of you who are keeping score at home, We talked about the attempted takeaway of non-compete agreements. The federal FTC's proposed rule to virtually ban all non-compete agreements around the United States. Well, from the potential takeaway and eradication of non-compete agreements, we move to severance agreements. Very often, for whatever the reason, employers need to terminate the employment of an employee or perhaps a group of employees. And in an effort to provide some sort of uh, runway or exit strategy or ability for those employees who are departing to have some semblance of continuing pay or continuing benefits, even after they're no longer employed by the company, the employer chooses to give a severance agreement to that employee or that group of employees. Again, it's certainly not like the employer is not going to be getting anything in return. They are often doing that as well so that they can secure a general release and other promises from the employee signing the severance agreement. 
So in some respects, there are benefits to the departing employee, just like there certainly will be some benefits coming to the employer, whether it is in the form of certainty that you're not going to be having potential claims um, down the line because of the general release, or because of some other promises that the employee makes as part of the consideration to give them severance benefits. And those of us in the employment law world know that even though every agreement has its own unique aspects to it, every employment situation and circumstance uh, is unique and very often requires certain tailored language for those severance agreements, there are provisions out there that tend to be standard in severance agreements. I just mentioned one, a general release that tends to be at the heart of what the employee is giving the employer in exchange for these valuable severance benefits. But there are other standard provisions that you tend to see in severance agreements. Two other examples, a confidentiality provision where the employee agrees at the minimum not to talk about the negotiations leading up to or the terms themselves of the severance agreement with any third party with limited exception. And you will often see things like a family member, a spouse or domestic partner, your tax or legal advisors um, with other kinds of language put into the agreements to make it clear that the employee is not prohibited uh, from going uh, to a government agency or talking with a government agency. But that's your typical kind of confidentiality provision. Another one is fairly standard. It's a non-disparagement provision, which essentially says that an employee, as further consideration for getting the severance benefits, agrees not to disparage the company and its employees, sometimes its board of directors or uh, senior officers, that kind of thing. You will typically see in severance agreements provisions like a confidentiality provision and a non-disparagement provision feels like we've seen those in severance agreements since the dawn of time. And during the Republican-led Trump administration, NLRB, those provisions on their face were not problematic. But here we are, as we know, with an extremely uh, aggressive National Labor Relations Board, NLRB, during this Biden administration. And last week, on Tuesday, February 21st, 2023, the board issued a very significant decision. For those keeping score at home, the decision is McLaren-Macomb, M-A-C-O-M-B. Again, Tuesday, February 21st, 2023, where the National Labor Relations Board essentially said that you cannot have employees agree to confidentiality, and non-disparagement provisions in their severance agreements of the kind that I just described to you and that many of you have been using for years. Now, this is not just going to be about me talking about the decision and some of the takeaways. I am also hoping that NLRB General Counsel Jennifer Abruzzo will be making another appearance. She has been so great on this podcast and so gracious with her time. I am hoping that uh, General Counsel Abruzzo will be coming on to this podcast next week, the week of March 6th, to talk a little bit more about this decision, what the ramifications are, and, and what the decision does not say. So 
Hopefully, I'll be able to make good on that promise to you. But until then, let's talk about this decision just a little bit. In McLaren-Macomb, the employer here decided that it needed to separate 11 different employees because of various COVID-related, quarantine-related limitations that the company had on the ability to continue to employ these individuals. Each one of those individuals was offered a severance agreement that contained many of the common terms, like a general release, but also contained a confidentiality provision and a non-disparagement provision, both of which essentially said what I just described as being included in most confidentiality and non-disparagement provisions. Here, the NLRB decided to overrule prior NLRB precedent which found that confidentiality and non-disparagement provisions in severance agreements were lawful as long as they were entered into voluntarily and that there was nothing else in the context that showed that there was some sort of unlawful or coercive behavior to get the employee to agree to those terms. This holding in McLaren-Macomb overruled prior board precedent. What did it say? Well, interestingly, this new NLRB decision last week held that an employer's mere offer of a severance agreement that had a confidentiality and non-disparagement provision was an unlawful threat to the employee's rights under the National Labor Relations Act, the NLRA. Again, let me emphasize that. Merely offering the agreement with those terms was itself an unfair labor practice. It was not just a matter of trying to enforce or have an agreement with those provisions. Even offering, even giving the employee, the individual, a severance agreement that contained the confidential and confidentiality and non-disparagement provisions, that in and of itself was an unfair labor practice under the NLRA. I think if you look at the decision and if you want to get a copy of the decision and you can't find it online, please do reach out to me and I'm happy to give you a copy of it. I think one of the undercurrents, if you read the decision, is the fact that the NLRB did not like that the union here apparently was not consulted about the decision to furlough the 11 uh, employees and what the implications and effects of that mass furlough was going to be. Here, too, the NLRB kind of dismissed this notion of, hey, we're talking about former employees, right? Because once they're furloughed and then given the proposed severance agreement, they are no longer employees, current employees. The board sort of dismissed that uh, rather quickly uh, by saying that the NLRB has historically found that Section 7 and Section 8 rights under the NLRA do extend to former employees. But this is a significant decision, such that the rule now, according to the NLRB, is that a severance agreement is unlawful if its terms have a reasonable tendency to interfere with, restrain, or coerce employees in the exercise of their Section 7 rights, and that an employer's proffer of such an agreement to employees is itself unlawful. So what are some takeaways here? What are some of the things you should be thinking about in light of this decision uh, from February 21st? 
First, uh, here is the reminder that I always give you every time we're talking about the NLRA and the NLRB. This does apply to union and non-union settings. This is not just about a union issue, even though there was a union involved in this particular case. So that even if you are a non-union facility, or you're entering into a or offering a severance agreement with a non-union employee, the NLRB still can take issue with your severance agreement. However, and here's an important distinction, we are at least theoretically talking only about severance agreements with employees or former employees that are covered by the NLRA in the first place. So as a result, this decision would not theoretically apply to your severance agreements with supervisory individuals because supervisory individuals are not necessarily covered by the NLRA. So for those employees of yours, current or former employees, who have supervisory roles, this decision does not implicate your ability to continue um, entering into a severance agreement or offering a severance agreement that has confidentiality and non-disparagement provisions with those individuals. It also appears that this decision is only prospective in nature. Unlike the FTC's proposed rule banning non-compete agreements that we talked about in January that would have some retroactive effect, this board decision last week is not likely to impact separation agreements that you already entered into and became effective as of last February 21st, 2023. But here, again, there needs to be an important distinction. So you won't necessarily be found by the NLRB to have violated anything in the spirit of this new decision simply because you have in existence prior separation agreements with those two now offending provisions. However, if after last week's decision, you now attempt to enforce those provisions, if you believe that an employee violated the confidentiality or non-disparagement provisions in your existing separation agreements, and you attempt to enforce those now moving forward, well, under this board's uh, new precedence based on the uh, McLaren-McComb decision last week, that attempt to enforce may result in the NLRB finding uh, that you engaged in an unfair labor practice. It's not clear whether this board decision is going to survive court litigation. If we get to a court of appeals or let alone by the U.S. Supreme Court, it's not clear at all that this NLRB decision will stand. And if you take it to its next logical conclusion, What's next in terms of potentially other offending provisions? Is there an argument to be made by the NLRB that companies can't even get a release then from employees because employees should never be forced to give up rights under all of those laws that they are attempting to waive from getting, uh, because they're getting these severance benefits? So are we left with separate separation agreements that companies are giving to employees where the company is not going to be getting anything back as consideration for giving valuable severance? Because remember, it's not just the monetary benefits that companies tend to give in these packages to employees. 
Very often it's continuation of benefits or paying for benefits uh, for a certain period of time. Very often you will see outplacement services and other components in these separation packages. Is a decision like this going to disincentivize employers from giving severance agreements in the first place? Again, I recognize that if they don't, employers will not then get the general release that comes with it. But the flip side is that the employees won't be getting valuable benefits if employers are more reluctant to provide severance agreements that now, according to the NLRB, can't contain confidentiality or non-disparagement provisions. And I get it, right? The NLRB is looking to maintain certain rights, particularly for the most vulnerable employees out there. And I have no problem with that. Employees should be protected from the unscrupulous type of employer. But are we going too far with some of these decisions? When number one, the employee is getting valuable consideration for entering into these provisions. Valuable consideration that the employee wants and knows it is getting in exchange for entering into some of these promises. And what about the situation where the employee is represented by counsel? Again, I understand that some of the issues we've talked about in the past, whether it's arbitration agreements, non-compete agreements, and maybe now severance agreements, if you have an individual representing herself or himself, maybe not knowingly uh, agreeing to waive X or agree to Y, but when the employee is represented by counsel, should the same rules or prohibitions apply? Why do we have the same kind of concern about what an individual is willing to give up, willing to settle, willing to accept in exchange for consideration that is valuable on its face when they've been represented by legal counsel? So there's a lot to unpack here, but again, as of last week's decision, we know now the NLRB's position. Again, I'm hoping to get General Counsel Abruzzo on next week to talk further from her perspective on this. But for the moment, there are three ways that companies can go here. Certainly the most conservative is for you to simply eliminate confidentiality and non-disparagement provisions in all of your non-supervisory severance agreements going forward. There will be some companies, though, that do not want to go that route and they will keep those provisions in. At the same time, potentially adding some catch-all language to the agreement about how none of these provisions are intended to restrict communications that are protected by Section 7 or Section 8 of the National Labor Relations Act. Again, this is a good time for you as a company to give some thought to what interest are you trying to protect with these provisions. Is this really a concern? Do you really need those provisions in the separation agreement, in the severance agreement? Or are they just something that have carried over through time in your form agreements? It's going to be interesting to also see whether there's litigation on such catch-all language. Will that be enough? Will it be enough to have catch-all language for the NLRB to say, all right, well, the provisions, as long as you say that, the provisions are not offensive and do not constitute an unfair labor practice? If not, will the rest of the agreement be severable so that you've given consideration to the uh, employee who signed the severance agreement, but now the NLRB comes and invalidates your provisions 
Does the NLRB invalidate the general release and everything else contained in that agreement, all the while you've already given consideration to the employee that has been received, deposited, and perhaps spent? Some companies still will go a third way and they will do nothing at the moment and see how the issue develops further in courts and or if we have a new Republican administration in Washington, D.C. in 2024 that leads to a changing of the NLRB yet again to precedent which did not have a problem with these provisions on their face. We will continue to monitor this case for you in particular, but in the meantime, you as a company should begin to consider how you want to approach severance agreements going forward. Let's move to uh, another really significant um, development. This time, a decision by the United States Supreme Court, this time in the wage and hour context. And it has to do with overtime exemptions. When it comes to a decision about whether an individual is exempt or not from overtime, and when you're dealing with cases determining if a company misclassified an individual or group of individuals as being exempt, you all know, I think, that you really need to look at two separate issues for that discussion. One, is the individual paid on a salary basis the minimum threshold amount? whether that's under the federal law, the FLSA, or a higher state minimum level. And then secondly, whether that individual meets the general job duties test, performs on a day-to-day -day basis the job duties that are set forth in the particular overtime exemption. Well, most of the cases that we talk about, most of the cases that you're involved in, I think address the second component of those tests, the job duties test, where the question is, is somebody, was somebody performing on a day-to-day -day basis the job functions of an exempt executive employee or an exempt administrative employee or an exempt professional employee? The job duties test tends to be at the heart of many of these cases that get litigated. Much more rare are the cases where you're talking about the salary basis. Now, some will look at whether the individual did or did not get the minimum level required, but very few cases come along and get litigated over whether put aside the job duties, put aside the amount that the individual received, was that individual actually paid on a salary basis, as that term is defined under the FLSA. And here we come to the U.S. Supreme Court. One day after the NLRB's decision last week that I just went through with you, the United States Supreme Court decided the case of Hewitt versus Helix Energy on February 22nd, 2023, in a ruling that may just dramatically impact the energy industry, certainly specifically, but also more broadly those businesses, those industries that compensate employees in the same manner in which this company compensated this individual. What really strikes out, I think, or really sticks out, I should say, to people who have looked at this decision or heard about this decision, on the surface, here's an individual who made more than $200,000 a year. 
an individual who, despite that, is still claiming that he should have been paid overtime under the FLSA for hours worked that were more than 40 in a week. Many people who have a problem with that, at least on its face, point to the fact that the FLSA, when enacted in 1938, was really designed to protect the certain type of worker, the migrant farm worker, the factory worker, some of the more vulnerable individuals in society who were getting abused, at least economically, by their employer. Fast forward some decades, we saw that litigation arose under the FLSA when it came to misclassification and the allegation that overtime was owed to industries where people felt were not meant to be industries covered under the original 1938 FLSA. Mortgage brokers, for example, and other industries over the years that saw a lot of litigation under the FLSA involving people who were making substantial amounts of money. But the issue here to the Supreme Court, if you read this decision and you accept what really amounts to a textual decision, in other words, one that relied on the actual text of the FLSA, not about what was right or wrong, fair or unfair, what may or may not have been intended when Congress enacted the FLSA in 1938. From the Supreme Court's standpoint, that's something that the elected officials in Congress need to address or not address when it comes to amendments or the lack thereof of the FLSA moving forward. Now here, for purposes of this decision, the issue was what does the FLSA say when it comes to what salary basis means? And that was the issue here. So the Supreme Court, in a 6-3 to three decision, the majority of Justices Kagan, Roberts, Thomas, Sotomayor, Barrett, and Jackson, and the minority of three, Justice Gorsuch, who filed a dissent, and Justice Kavanaugh, who filed a dissent, in which Justice Alito joined, the court majority recognized, by all accounts, this individual was a high-earning employee. But this high-earning employee who made more than $200,000 received a paycheck that was based on a daily rate. So the individual got that daily rate if he worked one day in the week. He got twice that rate if worked two days in the week, three times that rate if he worked three days that week, and so on. You can do the math. But the court looked at what does it mean to have to be paid on a salary basis. Salary basis means that the individual receives a predetermined amount each week that does not depend on the number of hours worked that week. In other words, the salary being given is a minimum amount of salary, that does not vary based on quality or quantity of work that is performed. There is a small exception here under the FLSA where companies are told that they can pay an individual based on an hourly, a daily, or a shift rate without violating the salary basis rule if you meet two components. One, if you guarantee at least the minimum salary level, regardless of the number of hours, days, or shifts that the individual works. And if the promised amount, the promised guarantee amount, 
bears some reasonable relationship to the amount actually earned in a typical week. In other words, as opposed to it being dwarfed by what the person is actually making. This particular individual, Hewitt, typically worked seven 12-hour days in most weeks, 84 hours a week. So the ramifications here with this decision were significant because if the individual is working 84 hours in a week, times that by the number of weeks where that happened, you can see how the potential liability could add up if overtime was owed for those hours over 40 in those weeks. And now let's extrapolate that further. How many other individuals besides this one individual, Hewitt, were compensated the same way and similarly not given overtime because they were deemed to be exempt as well? The company here believed that they were meeting the salary basis test based on the paychecks received by Hewitt, even if he was paid at, its, at his core on a daily rate. The Supreme Court, in its majority decision, rejected that. The Supreme Court said, quote, giving language its ordinary meaning, nothing in that description fits a daily rate worker who, by definition, is paid for each day he works and no others. Supreme Court went on to say the concept of salary is linked as a matter of common parlance to the stability and security of a regular weekly, monthly, or annual pay structure. So paying an individual like here on a daily rate, on a daily basis, where the amount of money the individual was guaranteed in the particular daily rate or even in a particular week did not really bear an actual relationship to the overall amount, this $200,000 plus that the individual ultimately earned, the company was not able to benefit from the exception and the court found that based on the actual language of the FLSA, the individual was not paid on a salary basis. And as the court said, this court's reading of the relevant regulations properly concludes this case. The company urges the court to consider supposed policy consequences of that reading, but even the most formidable policy arguments cannot overcome a clear textual directive. So because the Supreme Court found that the manner in which this individual, this highly compensated individual, did not meet the definition of a true salary basis, the individual could not be properly classified as exempt, and therefore for all of the weeks in which he worked more than 40 hours, he was entitled to time and a half as an overtime premium for those additional hours. Significant consequences for this company, sure, but significant consequences for other companies and in other industries around the country as well. You should look at your positions and your classifications of those positions. We talk about doing that quite a bit, and as I said at the beginning of this discussion, most of the focus when it comes to overtime uh, exemptions and overtime classifications focus on the job duties, right? We've said it before, we're not just talking about job descriptions. We're not just talking about what on paper 
you think the employee should be doing in their job, what are they actually doing day to day? And when you as a company have done, if you have internal audits with outside counsel or not, you have tended to focus on the job duties portion of these tests. This decision is a great reminder that you should be looking at your positions and your classifications not just whether the job duties are met for those positions, but the manner in which you are compensating those positions as well. That's a significant takeaway here. Let's stay in the wage and hour area, but go back from court developments to agency developments uh, and talk about uh, something that was also issued. Well, I mean, February was really a significant month. Thankfully, we are about to be out of the month. But on February 9th, 2023, the United States Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division issued a field assistant bulletin, the first one of 2023, to tackle a couple of significant issues that companies should be aware of. We all know that telework and remote work continues to be a significant issue in this post-pandemic world. On the wage and hour front, and I've said this a lot too, it is so much easier to be able to monitor, control, and perhaps then accurately pay employees for the work they're doing when they're working within the four walls of your office and it's easier for you to know what they're working on. So said another way, how do we continue to apply traditional wage and hour rules and regulations that existed in the world of the physical office when everybody was working together in the physical office now to circumstances when employees are still working but working remotely and we are continuing to see government agencies address those issues in recognition that you know the, the world is not necessarily going to be going back to five days a week everybody working in the physical office and on February 9th, the Wage and Hour Division tackled two contexts, the FLSA and the FMLA. Right at the start of the Field Assistance Bulletin, the Wage and Hour Division said it's looking to provide guidance to Wage and Hour Division field staff regarding how to ensure workers who telework are paid properly under the FLSA how to apply protections under the FLSA that provide for reasonable break time for nursing employees to express milk while teleworking from their home or from another location, and how to apply eligibility rules under the FMLA when employees telework or work away from an employer's facility. So let's talk about those two contexts. First, the issue of telework and the FLSA. As you know, and we were just talking a little bit about it in the context of the Supreme Court decision, the FLSA requires that covered employers are to pay non-exempt employees for all hours that they work, including work performed in their home or otherwise away from the employer's premises or job site. They've got to be paid a minimum wage, and they've got to be paid overtime if they work more than 40 hours in a week. The Wage and Hour Division continues, and this is an issue that we talked about last year a little bit, but if the employer knows or has reason to believe that work is being performed, 
The time must be counted and paid for as hours worked regardless of whether the employee works at the employer's location or teleworks from another location. That's existing law under the regs. An employer may satisfy its obligation to exercise reasonable diligence. And again, we talked about that. What happens in situations, particularly in a telework situation where the employee is working far more hours than the employer wanted them to work, expect them to, expected them to work, or permitted them to work? Well, on the one hand, we know that if the employee was performing work that was benefiting the employer, it's the employer's burden to determine that and to make sure that it is paying the employee accurately. If you don't want the employee to work overtime, it's not enough to just say you can't work overtime unless it's approved. There is some burden on the employer to make sure that's not happening. And if it is happening, your best bet is to deal with that through a performance management situation as opposed to simply not paying them for work that you know they performed. However, the Wage and Hour Division has said that an employer who has an obligation to engage in reasonable diligence to acquire knowledge about whether the employee is engaging in unscheduled hours of work, the employer can satisfy that obligation by providing a reasonable reporting procedure for non-scheduled time and then paying employees for all reported hours of work, even hours not requested by the employer. The flip side of that is, according to the Wage and Hour Division, if you have provided a reasonable reporting procedure for the individual to report even non-scheduled time and they don't report that non-scheduled time, the employee is not necessarily going to be able to claim later on that they were entitled to the additional payments. But you as a company need to make sure that you are providing a reasonable reporting procedure and that you are meeting your obligation to reasonably detect and determine whether employees are one, working X number of hours, and two, are being paid correctly for all of those hours. The Wage and Hour Division, uh, also just in its February 9th Field Assistance Bulletin, talked about meal breaks and meal periods. In some, the Wage and Hour Division says, bona fide meal breaks and periods where employees are completely relieved from duty and are able to effectively use the time for their own purposes are not hours worked under the FLSA. This is true regardless of the location from which employees perform their work. Now the Wage and Hour Division talked about an issue that we're seeing both on the federal level and the state level, protections for nursing mothers who need to express breast milk. As the Wage and Hour Division reminds us, the FLSA requires that employers provide covered employees reasonable break time for an employee to express breast milk, for such employees nursing child for one year after the child's birth each time such employee has a need to express the milk and also to provide for the employee a place other than a bathroom that is shielded from view and free from intrusion from co-workers and the public which may be used by an employee to express breast milk. So where would this issue come up in a telework context? Well, 
depends on whether the individual is working from home or working outside of the normal physical office, but still at some client or company controlled work site. So, for example, the Wage and Hour Division states that an employer must still provide an appropriate place for an employee to pump breast milk when the employee is working at an off-site location, such as a client work site. When it comes to employees who are working remotely from their home, that's when this notion of shielded from view comes into play. So that an employer is obligated to ensure that the employee has a place to express breast milk that is shielded from view. As the Wage and Hour Division states now, this includes ensuring that an employee is free from observation by any employer provided or required video system, including a computer camera, security camera, or web conferencing platform, Zoom, Teams, Google Meet, when that employee is expressing breast milk, regardless of the location they are working from, and that could include working from home. The second context that the Wage and Hour Division tackled is telework and the FMLA. Remember, in order to be entitled to the leave benefits that the FMLA provides, an employee must work for a covered employer and the employee himself or herself must be eligible because they've worked for that employer for at least 12 months. They have worked for at least 1,250 hours during the 12-month period immediately preceding the leave need. And they work at a location where the employer has at least 50 employees within 75 miles. The latter requirement was far easier to calculate when everybody is working within, again, the four walls of a company's office. What happens if you are working alone, as would be the case, remotely out of your own home? Well, the Wage and Hour Division has given us guidance. When an employee works from home or otherwise teleworks, their work site for FMLA eligibility purposes is the office to which they report or from which their assignments are made. Thus, if 50 employees are employed within 75 miles from the location to which the employee reports or from which their assignments are made, the employee meets the FMLA eligibility requirement. The count of employees within 75 miles of a work site includes all employees whose work site is within that area, including employees who telework and report to or receive assignments from that work site. So don't just think, that you don't have an eligible, an FMLA eligible employee simply because that individual is working remotely from home outside the 75 miles of the work site or in an area where you don't have 50 or more people working in their homes. The calculation must look at whether the individual is meeting the uh, calculations based on the location to which the employee reports or from where their assignments are made. Again, not from the home location where they are working. So in conclusion, and just to sum up everything that we've just been saying, the Wage and Hour Division for purposes of the FLSA and telework now told us that employees who telework are entitled to compensation for all hours worked, for short rest breaks, 
and in qualifying circumstances to take breaks to express breast milk free from intrusion and shielded from view. That applies equally to employees who telework as to employees working at an office, factory, construction site, retail outlet, or any other physical work site location. And then for purposes of telework and the FMLA, the determination of the work site for an employee who teleworks is fact specific, but will be based on such factors as where the employee reports to work or what is the location from where the employee's assignments are made. Good clarification and guidance from the Wage and Hour Division, certainly. And we will continue, I suspect, as the months and the years go, see government agencies in all contexts giving additional guidance like this so that um, employers know how to comply with the various legal obligations in this post-pandemic world. Last, for purposes of today, I wanted to report on a trend or maybe a potential trend that has been batted around for some time, but now is the subject of a much more focused study that is making the news if it hasn't gotten to your desk just yet. The four-day work week. Some have talked about, looked at, maybe even considered whether to go to a four-day work week, but not changing the 40-hour work week concept. In other words, instead of Five days of nine to five, maybe you're doing four days of um, eight to six. So instead of five eight-hour days, you're doing four ten-hour days so that you still keep the 40-hour work week concept. Well, an interesting sub-consideration here is whether not only are we going to go from five days to four days, but are we going to keep the eight-hour work days so that instead of the traditional five um eight-hour days, we're going to go to four eight-hour days. Put another way, instead of a 40-hour work week in concept, we're going to move to a 32-hour-a-week concept. And an interesting study was just published about that, and the findings are interesting. If you can't find it uh, through your own Google search, or you just don't want to take the time to do your own Google search, please reach out to me, and I'm happy to send you uh, this study that was published. Uh, but it really is uh, fairly significant, I think. Um, this was a trial that was done in the UK from June to December 2022. It involved 61 different companies and around 2,900 different workers. The conclusions may not be surprising, but they are interesting, and I think will probably foster some more discussion in this area. The trial that took place with these companies and with these workers began with about two months of preparation for participants. And again, the program involved going from five-day work weeks to four days of eight-hour-day work weeks, 40 hours to 32 hours. According to the study, companies, which included a range of organizations from all different sectors and of all different sizes, were not required for purposes of this study to rigidly deploy one particular type of working time reduction or even a particular four-day week schedule. The only caveat was that pay of the employees had to be maintained at 100% and employees had to have a meaningful reduction in work time. Let me say that again. 
for purposes of this study, we were not reducing the pay of employees commensurate with the reduction of work time from five days and 40 hours to four hours, uh, sorry, to four days and 32 hours. The pay main was maintained at 100%. So each company that participated in this uh, program designed a policy that was tailored to its particular industry, its own organizational challenges, departmental structures, and work culture. Some of them used the classic Friday off model. Some of them had much more of a staggered or decentralized or annualized structure. And the report was interesting in that it's referred to as having been a resounding success. Of the 61 companies that participated, 56 of them have decided that they are going to continue with the four-day week. That's 92% of them. 18 have confirmed that that policy will now be a permanent change. Moving to four days a week will be a permanent change. Using the before and after data that was obtained by or from the employees, it showed that, according to this study, 39% of employees were less stressed than they were before. 71% had reduced levels of burnout at the end of the trial program. Anxiety, fatigue, and sleep issues decreased while mental and physical health of the employees improved. Measures of work-life balance also improved during the trial period, according to the study. Employees found it easier to balance their work with both family and social commitments. For 54% of the um, participating employees, they found it was easier to balance work with household jobs, and employees were far more satisfied with their household finances, relationships, and how their time was being managed. 60% of employees found that they had an increased ability to combine paid work with care responsibilities, and 62% reported that it was easier to combine work with social life. Again, it was found to be a resounding success, resoundingly positive of a trial, both for the employee and the company. For those of you who are saying, yeah, of course, of course, the employees are getting the same pay, but they're just working less. Well, the interesting part here is that the study found that the employers found this to be a successful one as well. So focusing on a narrow business case, for example, the study found from the employer side that revenue stayed approximately the same, rising slightly by about 1.4% over the course of the trial program, and that revenue was actually up 35% in comparison to the same time period the prior year in 2021. While these employers did see improvements in hiring, absenteeism, and resignation. More broadly, again, as I said a moment ago, employees found that they were in a much improved position at the end of the program than they were in at the beginning of the program. They were less stressed, felt less burnout. Employees reported that their life satisfaction had improved. Therefore, because the employees felt that way, the employers were seeing greater productivity and a greater sense of loyalty from their employees. Interestingly, 
there was a little desire, I should say there was little desire to return to the old traditional pre-pandemic ways of working. When employees were asked to make a hypothetical trade-off between working time and pay, according to the study, 70% of employees noted that they would require a higher salary of between 10 to 50% to go back to a full five-day schedule. 8% claimed that they would need more than 50% extra pay or more. And 15% said that there was no amount of money that could take them back from the four-day week. The study concludes by saying, taken as a whole, results from the trial therefore make clear that the four-day week is ready to take the next step from experimentation to implementation. Those looking to move to shorter working hours now have access to a growing base of organizations already ironing out the four-day week in practice by adapting different models and structures to the demands of their own size and sector and building up a toolkit of tips and tactics to be drawn upon by others. Again, to be clear, the study says this is not just about benefiting the employees, but benefiting both sides to the employer-employee relationship. The study concludes by saying, the benefits of a shorter working week for no reduction in pay are now both well-known and well-evidenced. Employees are happier and healthier, and the organizations they work for are often more productive, more efficient, and retain their staff more readily. Interestingly, beyond just talking about it, we are seeing some action already here in the United States. Maryland just recently introduced the Four-Day Work Week Act of 2023, designed to incentivize employers to make this move from a five-day work week to a four-day work week. Under the proposed bill, employers would receive state income, sorry, state income tax credits of up to $750,000 per fiscal year if the company transitions at least 30 employees from a five-day to a four-day work week without reducing any pay or benefits. So putting aside what kind of incentives, dare I say requirements, that the states and maybe even the federal government decide to introduce in the coming months, coming years, is this something your company has looked into? Is this something, something your company should look into? There is no one-size-fits-all. It's going to depend on your particular industry, your business, and your work culture. But the takeaway, if nothing else, is that it is at least a discussion that is happening. Well, I think that's enough for about an hour here. A lot to digest, a lot to chew on, a lot to talk about. We will continue to monitor all of these developments. Employment law, labor and employment law, I tell you, continues to be fascinating and interesting. I hope this was fascinating and interesting for all of you to listen to. I hope you're able to take something useful out of all of this in your own minds and in your own organizations. And until the next time... I hope all of your labor is productive.